At U.S. Bank, when we say we're in it with you, we mean it. Not just for the good stuff, the grand openings and celebrations, although those are pretty great, but for all the hard work it took to get there. The fine-tuning of goals, the managing of cash and workflows, and decision-making. We're in to help you through all of it. Because together, we're proving day in and day out that there is nothing as powerful as the power of us. Visit usbank.com to get started today. Equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024. U.S. Bank. As you travel the world, you may be left with one burning question. Where do you go to discover the perfect margarita flavor? Cayman Jack asked that very question and then searched far and wide for the best ingredients so that you don't have to. Cayman Jack is a pre-mixed margarita-flavored malt beverage that combines blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect refreshing flavor. The ingredients are a perfect balance of salty, sweet, and sour every time. Margaritas are maybe the perfect drink. So the search is over, but the adventure is just beginning. Discover legendary taste for yourself with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. Hi. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jonathan. How are you guys? Doing well, Dylan. Hi, Dylan. We are being joined here today again by our Places editors, Michelle Cassidy and Jonathan Carey. You know, we wanted to talk today about this perennial question, the question that I think we all get asked again and again, which is what is an Atlas Obscura place? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> the eternal it, question that we the always etern- ask. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and a difficult one to answer, too. Very true. An interesting question that I've realized I usually answer that thing with, you know, we can talk about what's wondrous and what's amazing and what's hidden. But usually how we answer that question is by talking about what an Atlas place is not. Um, you know, it's not something that's super famous. It's not something that you would usually find in sort of like a a guidebook or or a or a travel guide of, you know, the most popular things to visit somewhere. Um you know, we're not going to tell you to go see Big Ben. We might know about something sort of secret and and hidden inside of it. Um, but but that's sort of how I answer that question a lot of the time. Right. Defining sort of what is by saying what is not. Totally. So, exactly. OK, so what's uh, give me an example. What is not an Atlas Obscura location? One of my favorite kind of examples of like what is not but what is an Atlas Obscura place is, OK, like the Eiffel Tower. Avatar was amazing structure. It's a wonderful place, but it's not really hidden, wondrous. I think we all kind of right. know about the Eiffel Tower a bit. But yeah. one of the, one of the things that we would say is a quintessential Atlas place, and we always say that um, is something hidden in a popular destination, or is it adjacent to a popular destination? Is it some strange hidden fact about this particular popular thing that nobody knows about? And one of those things is located right in the Eiffel Tower, and that is Gustav Eiffel's secret apartment that's located right at the very top of the Eiffel Tower. Is this where uh, 
Monsieur Eiffel lived? Like, was that his permanent residence? That's a great question. It actually was not his permanent residence. It was actually like this little cozy, quaint, small apartment that just had like paisley wallpaper, um, some carpeting, desk, a toilet cubicle. Um, and he had a little area where he even could do little scientific experiments. It didn't have a bedroom, but it was his own little private apartment, including a piano um, that he really used to reflect and think. I remember when this got added to the Atlas and my mind was blown because I just figured I knew everything. I mean, you know, I just assumed that there was nothing to say really more about the Eiffel Tower that wasn't fairly well known or like really in the historical minutia. Absolutely. But like the idea that there was a space up there like blew (laughs) my mind. Still does. Also, what a flex, Gustav Eiffel, to be like, I'm (laughs) Bill. Speaking of flex, like, and, and I think what you've mentioned on is the same thing that I thought too. Like I've never been to Paris and I never would have known until I worked on this entry that this actually existed. So it really opened my eyes to something else in the world that I had no idea about and actually was able to visit through an entry. He was pretty much like the envy of most Parisianers. Like everybody wanted to spend a night in this apartment and were jealous that he had this apartment. Um, It's actually been rumored that he was offered small fortunes um, for people from people to just spend an evening in the apartment. Did he ever let them? Yeah, how, like, did he invite did you, them into his like... How did you get in there? That's my question. Like, what did you need to do to be invited up? to be up? basically his best bud, which was Thomas Edison. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, if you go to the day, the apartment is still there and you can view it. And there's actually a recreation of um, these wax figurines of Thomas Edison, of Eiffel, and his daughter. And kind of sitting around, and it's believed that this meeting, or this particular visit, that this is where Edison gifted Eiffel with one of the first ever recording devices known to man. Part of what makes it so hard to describe what an Atlas Obscura place is, is it's not always about just the location. It's often about the story. Like, what is the story? This is good because there's this incredible story and this tiny piece of the Eiffel Tower that people maybe don't realize is there. And so sometimes it's like, if... You know, yeah, someone wrote tomorrow and was like, Big Ben, uh, you, there's a little secret chamber behind the clock that people like hung out in. You'd, we would, in a second, like totally. we, that's exactly, yeah. So I think that's like a really interesting point. I about love that what, place. Yeah, what is and is not uh, an Atlas entry. Uh, Michelle, how do you think about this question of, because you have to look at stuff and basically say yes or no or maybe all the time. So how do you how do you think, think about this? What what I really love are places that, you know, take something that you know about, um, you know, sort of similar to the Eiffel Tower. It takes something you know about and and put an interesting spin on it or take it to a totally different part of the world. And you know, the starting point for for one of the other places that comes to mind for me is also Paris. You know, the Louvre is the biggest museum in the world. It's one of the like most heavily trafficked museums in the world, if not the most heavily trafficked. Uh, It's not exactly obscure, but what a lot of people don't know about is that there is a much smaller museum in a much smaller city in Japan that is called the Japan Louvre Sculpture Museum that has like over a thousand replicas of some of the most famous pieces of artwork, not only from the Louvre, but also from the British Museum and the Met and the Rodin Museum. And they're all just crammed into this fascinating little space. That's so amazing. How how did this come to exist? Who who did this? Yes, this please. is an, what an amazing and, like, and yeah. thing, know about because this like <laughs> yeah. there are lots of places that have replicas of famous artwork. 
The story behind this is just like so weird and delightful. So this museum was actually founded by a Buddhist priest. His name is Yujiro Takegawa. uh, And he was so taken with the Louvre and the statues in it that he wanted to try to bring home a piece of it to Japan. He was absolutely astonished. And according to some of the stories that I read, he loved specifically the Venus de Milo. And he like desperately wanted to find a way to bring the experience of going to the Louvre to Japan. Uh, And so he got in contact with the museum leadership and he kept coming back over and over again to Paris. And apparently it took, um, like, I I read somewhere that on his 17th visit, the museum finally agreed to let him start a new museum, include the Louvre's name in the name of his own collection, um, and fill it basically with these like insanely detailed replicas that, you know, they're not they're not the sort of like knockoff, like uh, off brand things that you might see. They're not bottom shelf versions. They're right. The, the the desktop counter, like like paperweight version yeah. of the Venus de Milo. That I, exactly. Like, they all... And they're like they're full size. They're created by museum engineers from these museums for the most part. I think only one thing in the museum was actually created in Japan. Um and and so they like have everything down to like scratches and imperfections that are on the like legitimate pieces of artwork and it's it's so fascinating there are flanking the entrance i really love this picture is a venus de milo on one side and then the uh, winged victory of samothrace on the other side and then there are additional replicas of those two sculptures inside the museum How so? When did the museum open? How long did it take him to get this? It opened up in and 1987. Running? So his first visit was in I think 1965, and so it took him like 20 like years 20 between years. like getting permission and collecting wow. all of these. That's incredible. Um, you know, he has a mask of Tutankhamun replica, the bust of Nefertiti, the coat of Hammurabi. He has a copy of the Rosetta Stone. Wow, that's incredible. I'm just amazed by this guy's dedication to like continue through with this like passion project. I think that's like what makes it even more, well, I don't want to say cooler than the Louvre, but I mean, it's on par with the Louvre. I mean, like it's, it's this guy's particular passion project that he really spent like dedicated, he's dedicated a great portion of his life to like accomplishing mm-hmm. his goal. And he did it. Like, I think that's like so commendable. I mean, I probably would have stopped after the first two <laughs> trips and... <laughs> Yeah, I also so you could check so many things off your bucket list at once. You're like, exactly. it's got stuff from all of these different museums. You're like, oh, yeah, I've seen all that. I saw I saw it uh, in yeah, Japan. Exactly. I saw it in this <laughs> tiny little museum in Tsuu in the Mie Prefecture. And I think that's it's also it's like not in Tokyo. It's not in Osaka. It's not in a big city. It's in this, you know, pretty small city in central Japan. And I desperately want to go. Those are both such perfect Atlas Obscura places. And, you know, I think it's it's also a good example how anything can sort of start the thread, right? You can start at the Eiffel Tower or the Louvre and be like, well, this isn't, this is just like the most popular thing in this entire famous city. And then sort of draw it out and end up somewhere 
really, really interesting. And I, I, I kind of love that part of this work is that sort of pulling on the the thread, going down the rabbit hole and, and you know, 15 tabs later, you're like, this is the thing. This is really it. Yeah, yeah. I really, I really do enjoy these, you know, unique replicas or these unique offshoots of popular locations. I think it's what makes Dallas special. And I think it's gives something for people to even go out and uncover. Like, well, can I find the next Gustav Eiffel's apartment? Can I find the next unique museum? And I just find that like kind of hunt even more fascinating. Uh, well, thanks, guys. This was really, really fun to talk about. Always glad to basically talk over the philosophical <laughs> Rosetta, our own Rosetta Stone yes. of what is and is not an Atlas place. Um, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks. And always remember, if you have any tips, suggestions, thoughts, interesting places, feel free to shoot us an email at places at atlasobscura.com. We'd love to hear from you. Or if you just want to say hi. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, McKenna Smith, Guinevere Govea, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Peter Clowney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Treat Dad to the good stuff at Nordstrom Rack and save big. Father's Day is Sunday, June 16th, and Nordstrom Rack's got gifts Dad will love, up to 60% off. Shirts activewear, watches, cologne, denim, and more. Find amazing deals on Tommy Bahama, Cole Haan, Original Penguin, and Vince. Great brands, great prices. So get to your Nordstrom Rack store now and make Dad's day with gifts up to 60% off. We all know Kit Kat bars taste delicious, but what about how they sound? It's not just a catchy jingle. It's the satisfying crack of breaking off a piece of Kit Kat, followed by a crisp crunch. Oh, we forgot one other sound that accompanies Kit Kat bars, too. It's, or maybe it's more like, all together, Kit Kat bars are music to our ears and yummy flavors to our mouths. Have a break. Have a Kit Kat.